what we're seeing right now, and specifically at the reef that I was working at, is we're seeing climate change winners and losers. A shift in total reef composition, but we're not necessarily seeing a decline in total coral percent cover. I feel quite confident that the, because the dominant reef building species are continuing to acclimatize to the new conditions, that hopefully we won't lose all the benefits of a reef ecosystem. Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, hosted by me, Charlie Young, and me, Mad St. Clair. We're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists. Each week, we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science. From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers, to PhD students and researching mamas, we'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications. And smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. Hey team, and welcome back to another episode of the Women in Ocean Science podcast. Today, we have another kick-ass woman on the podcast to discuss another one of my favorite things, and that is coral reefs. Now, the plight of coral reefs is well-known and urgent. Feeling the pressures of a changing climate, reefs around the world have become an ecosystem in crisis. And as global temperatures continue to increase, the question on everybody's lips is, will coral reefs be able to adapt to what's to come? So today we're here with Kelsey Archer-Barnhill to discuss her paper on just this, titled Acclimatization Drives Differences in Reef-Building Coral Calcification Rates. Originally from the USA, Kelsey did her master's at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences, where she spent two months in Hawaii completing her fieldwork. And the paper we'll be discussing today is based on this master's work. But since then, Kelsey has actually become a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh and is now studying the impacts of climate change on cold water corals. Today, we'll be chatting about this journey moving from tropical to deep sea corals and what it was like getting those manuscripts published with the help of an incredible majority female team. Kelsey, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hello, Mads. Hello, Charlie. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast today. I'm doing great. It's actually a sunny day here in uh, normally rainy Edinburgh, Scotland. So <laughs> yeah. very keen to maybe get out and enjoy some sun later. So what are you doing in Scotland at the moment? I'm a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh. I'm based at the Grant Institute for the School of Geosciences. And I just started my second year of my PhD studying climate change impacts on deep sea cold water corals. That's absolutely brilliant to hear, Kelsey. But today, the main reason that you're here to talk to us is about your most recent paper, which we are very excited to discuss today because it's about coral um, and specifically the acclimatization drives differences in reef building coral calcification rates. So um, let's jump right in. Kelsey, could you give us kind of an abstract podcast-like summary of your paper? Yes, absolutely. So my paper was looking at how acclimatization of reef-building coral species in Hawaii 
causes these differences in calcification rates. So I focused on a well-studied bay, Kaneohe Bay, which is on the island of Oahu. And when I went out to do my master's research, I first did these transects. And I realized that along a 600 meter section of the Malakua'a fringing reef, that there was very big differences in coral and algae cover at two reefs, it's the same reef, but at two sides of the reef that were very close to each other. And this got me thinking, well, could the environment be causing these differences we're seeing in coral cover? Or maybe it's the genetics of the corals. So to go ahead and explore this kind of hypothesis and idea that I had, really just based on field observations, I went ahead and did a reciprocal transplant experiment. So this entailed taking corals from both sites. I chose two different species, which were the primary reef building species at this site, Montipori, Montipora capitata and Parides compressa. And you take them from each site, you leave half at their original site, and then you switch the other half. And in this way, you're able to see, you're able to compare the growth rates at their original site, kind of called the resident site, and the site that they've been switched to. So after doing this experiment, I looked at linear extension. So that's the primary calcification, how much coral reefs grow vertically, grow up. And I also looked at secondary calcification, how much a coral grows outwards. And this is expressed in dry skeletal weight in my experiment. So through looking at this, I was able to look at the calcification or the growth rates of corals at their original site and if they were to live at the other site to maybe see if one site provided a better habitat for these corals than the other, even though they were so, so close together. And so what I did see is that there was differences in temperature, there was differences in salinity, and there was differences in aragonite saturation between the two sites. And while Montipora capitata didn't seem to mind this, it grew completely the same at both sites and did not care if it was switched between it, Parides compressa actually grew a lot better at the site which was cooler, but with lower salinity and a lower aragonite saturation horizon, which was actually at aragonite saturation below two, which corals sometimes aren't really that fussed about. So I was really excited to find this result. And even though there was a difference between kind of the resident corals, so to speak, between each sites for Parides compressa, when we switched them, they were able to adapt and acclimatize at this other site. So that was a really exciting to see that maybe Montipora capitata might be a little bit hardier, but Parides compressa can be a tough little coral as well. <laughs> wow. Kelsey, that was a top job of, of explaining your paper in about a minute. Honestly, that was absolutely <laughs> brilliant. You've just gone through and smashed through loads of the questions I had. So um, we'll have to come in and unpick that a bit more, but absolutely amazing effort and um, very exciting results. Yeah, yes. I mean, it sounds like an incredibly elaborate study, chopping up corals, taking some to a new part, leaving some in their original place. And from looking at your paper, you had to collect a heck of a lot of data. So not only did you have to look at the calcification rates, but you also had to collect all of these environmental parameters um, to kind of, I guess, understand the differences between the sites. So can you tell us a little bit more about you know, just how much data and how many different parameters you had to collect? Absolutely. So even just starting with the coral, uh, we're collecting from a different number of colonies. Um, this was myself and Ashley McGowan, who's on the paper. She was another master's student based at University of Hawaii, Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology at the time. 
We went out together. Luckily, this was a very shallow area, so that made it easy to access. It was The water was about one, two meters deep, so we were able to just snorkel to go ahead and collect these coral fragments. So we went from different colonies at both sites, made sure we collected enough material, brought it back, went ahead, fragmented these corals, had them in these outdoor tanks, which was a great facility to have access to. I was based at the Coral Reef Ecology Lab at the Hawaii Institute mm. of Marine Biology, which if anyone ever gets a chance to go ahead and study there, do a research project, I cannot recommend highly enough. I had an incredible experience there, such a supportive team who ended up all being on, on this paper as well, which I can talk about some more later. But just collecting these corals um, and labeling them, you would not believe the amount <laughs> of time it takes <laughs> to label 120 corals. And I, I knew if this was a lab experiment, maybe you could get away with labeling once. I would always say label things twice. Yes. But knowing that I was deploying these back in the field, just putting them back in the ocean and hoping that oh, they'd turn no. up later... I thought I'm going to label these corals twice, <laughs> once with a Sharpie, once I had a label maker and IDing all of them, randomizing which one was which number, randomizing what tray they were on, what order they were on on these trays. It, I mean, it was a full two days, you know, 10 hour days just labeling these. And I don't think that's something sometimes you consider uh, with, yeah. when you're thinking about doing research. Absolutely. And I, I, so I have a bit of experience um, working with corals and I can vouch that, you know, the amount of data you had to collect and also just, just the amount of corals that you're working with and the whole labeling thing. It is true, guys. It is a <laughs> heck of a lot of Yes. Oh gosh. Yeah. I, my, um, when I did my master's research, actually, which was also based on coral reefs, my field supervisor, she was also doing a uh, reciprocal transplant experiment between, um, putting corals in a mangrove environment and putting them on the reef. So, um, Obviously, mangroves are very dark. The salinity is different. Temperature can be different. Um, but when we went at the mangroves, we found corals growing there. Wow. So she swapped out the coral species from the mangroves to the reef and the reef to the mangroves to kind of see what would happen. I actually must chase her on that because it was her PhD. Um, but yeah, really, really interesting project. But yeah, Kelsey, I wanted to come back to what you said about comparing the difference in calcification between the child and the parent colonies. So were you comparing an average of all growths with all average parent colonies or were you doing it by individual? Everything was done individually. So I didn't mark any of you know the larger colonies growth at the sites. It was just they kept within their... I, I kept track of which corals came from what individual colony, and then each one was put in individually. However, one of the figures you can see within my paper, that is where you can see the average growth for each parent colony. So that was one way to kind of visualize it. And there definitely was trends. You could see some colonies fared better than others, grew faster. Where it wasn't a significant statistic result, I had one colony of parietes that just did not enjoy life. So yeah, it's it, always one. Exactly. It just, just even at even when it, the ones that went back to the original residence site just weren't looking happy, were pale at the end of the experiment, and other ones had died and been removed from the statistical analyses. Which I was lucky that I, I think I only had to remove maybe three or four fragments in total. So the corals in general were quite happy. But yeah, just seeing that, oh, this one colony didn't make it, it's quite clear to see, oh, yes, the colony definitely has an impact on individual growth. 
Kelsey, so I just wanted to go back to a part of your methodology. Um, I noticed that, or, or as you explained, that you actually broke up these corals. Um, and so, you know, your experiment is essentially to see if potentially these corals are more resistant to increased stresses that are being brought on by things such as climate change. But I, I read in your methodology that you actually broke them up into nubbins. Is that not really stressful for the corals? And could that not have contributed to potentially, um, you know, the, the loss of corals that you experienced with a couple? Um, I'm just going to quickly jump in here and say, if you could also explain what a nubbin is, Kelsey, that would be brilliant. Great. That's a really good question. So I kind of think of corals in a way as like the succulents of the sea. You know, if you have succulents in your garden and you can kind of pop one of the leaves off and put it elsewhere and it will still grow. So that's what I kind of did to the corals in a way. I took these larger chunks and then I cut them up into pieces, which we can call nubbins or fragments, depending on the literature. I love I mounted, nubbins. I'm going with nubbins. Yes, it nubbins sounds so much cuter. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds so much cuter, I think. Yeah, fragments. But I, for some reason, I'm calling them fragments in my PhD uh, research, but maybe I should change it to nubbins just for the cuteness factor. <laughs> yeah, because they're nubbins in this one, in the paper that you've just done. I remember reading it and being like, I love this one. <laughs> okay, I didn't know that would strike such a chord with my audience of readers. <laughs> Let's get our podcast guests to take a vote after this. Yep. Nubbins or fragments, we'll have to get the definitive, definitive market research result. Absolutely. I'm so keen. But no, so the corals, when you fragment them and put them into their little nubbins, yes, you want to give them some recovery days. So I didn't just cut them up and throw them back out into the ocean the next day. <laughs> I let them rest within the, within the tank at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology, let them chill out, calm down. They'll produce some mucus when you're cutting them up. Of course, that's not their best day they've ever had. But after <laughs> a few days, you can put them back out and expect normal growth rates. This is a really common practice done across coral reef research to fragment them, cut them up. I also stain their skeleton with alizarin red. And there's a part of alizarin that can be harmful or dangerous to the corals, but as long as it's at a small enough concentration, when you're staining it in their water and in their tanks for that day, then it'll just, the corals will incorporate the alizarin red stain into their skeleton. And this is a way that you can then look at how much linear extension, how much of that primary calcification has happened at the end of the experiment. Because there's a figure in my image and you can see that the alizarin red stains the corals a nice little yes. pretty pink. And so any white growth on top of that, that's going to be the new growth that occurred during the experiment. So yes, I'd manipulated these corals a bit, but these are all very common, very standard practices done within coral reef research, which has been proven time and time again, not to be too harmful to the corals to significantly impact any results found. And in terms of measuring the dry skeletal weight where it's growing outwards, how did you measure that? Yes, so my dry skeletal weight, I did it by buoyant weighing. And this is, an, again, another really common technique and so instead of just taking your coral and putting it on a scale like you might do with other animals or plants um, and research that you're doing there, because corals within their tissues, they're holding water and it could be in their skeleton as well, you want to make sure that you weigh it underwater. So a lot of weights have a little hook on the bottom and you, you tie a metal wire to this hook and then you hang off this little weight with the coral sitting in it underwater and then that is how you get the weight. However, this can be quite variable. So 
we weighed every single coral fragment three times and took the average of that. And we were doing it in a kind of partially indoor-outdoor facility. So the wind would come. And so we put towels over the windows. And I hope this isn't making my data seem a bit, hmm, um, in question. <laughs> no, <laughs> science, baby, science. <laughs> yes, but it was, it is quite a time-consuming process. But we, in order to prevent too much handling on the corals. We did this at the same time that they were cut and glued to their pedestal at the start of the experiment. And then at the end of the experiment as well, it was an end point. So we wanted to minimize handling, but we weren't too concerned about how they would perform after this. Wow. I love it. Um, so, you know, you've spoken about these different species of corals potentially having higher resilience. And as your studies showed that they potentially do. However, you mentioned at some point genetic based coral resilience. So I noticed that you didn't actually do any genetics on the corals before you did the study. So how can you infer the potential for, you know, genetic based coral resilience, as opposed to it being developed from just environmental stress that these corals are being put under? Great yes. question. <laughs> yes, great question. Thank you very much. And I'm, I'm not a geneticist. That's entirely correct. There's other people whose entire career is, is devoted to looking into the genetics of coral reefs, including lab groups at, based at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. However, I went back to classical ecology here with the reciprocal transplant experimental design. Other basic experiments like this sort of setup, like the common garden experiments, for example, this is another way where you can kind of start to untangle whether or not any differences could be genetic or environmental. So because some corals stayed at their original site and others were swapped to the other site 600 meters away, you're able to see how environment influences this. And because their colony is just built into who they are, you're able to track performance across parent colonies. So instead of genetics, no, of course, I did not actually explore that. What I explored and my parameter I looked at was parent colony performance. Mm -hmm. Love it. Really, really interesting, Kelsey. Yeah, and so... Let's talk about this in the context of the future of the reef now. Adapt or die. Are we seeing corals adapting to what could possibly be challenging conditions in the future? How do you think this could bode for coral reefs going forwards? What we're seeing right now, and specifically at the reef that I was working at, is we're seeing climate change winners and losers. We're seeing a shift in total reef composition, but we're not necessarily seeing a decline in total coral percent cover. So I mentioned that I noticed a difference between coral and algae percent cover between these two sites. And that was based on more work I did out there during my master's, which I published in the Journal of Marine Science and Engineering in 2019. And this was where I did surveys. And I, what I did is I actually replicated a survey, which had first been done in 2000 and had not been done since. So I was able to look at this fringing reef and see how the reef composition had changed over 18 years. And I was able to find that the coral percent cover was completely the same. Algae percent Whoa. cover had decreased when it came to macroalgae, but was about the same if you took into account turf and other little small algae bits, which oftentimes just covers the tops of corals, um, maybe if the coral reef had been exposed to air for a little while, but that's not as big of an issue as this big macroalgae cover. 
But what we saw is that despite the coral cover being the same, which is great, good news, that we did have a shift in species composition. So there was two mm. species that used to be present at this site, which were not there any longer. And then there was one new species that appeared. So we're really seeing this shift in adaptability and change at these reefs. But I feel quite confident that the, because the dominant reef building species are continuing to acclimatize to the new conditions, that hopefully we won't lose all the benefits of a reef ecosystem, specifically coastal protection and the habitat creation, the 3D structural complexity of reefs. I really feel confident that in a place like Hawaii, which I will say already has cooler waters than other places that are um, at lower latitudes, which are already naturally in warmer water, they might be struggling a bit more. The Hawaiian water, um, I was there in the summer and the temperature was in the high 27 and a half, 20, 28 degrees. And we're talking about other reefs being at already being at 30. So I do think there's hope for the Hawaiian coral reefs. I can't speak so much about other tropical reefs. See, that's a very different story to kind of what makes it into the mainstream news, isn't it? I mean, I think a lot of people think that we're going to lose reefs completely by, you know, the middle of the century. Whereas what you're showing is that in some places, coral reef, you know, coral cover isn't actually declining. It's it's staying the same, but that you're just getting this species shift. Um, so the more resilient species, potentially those that you included in your study, are the ones that are going to remain there. So we might not completely lose coral reefs, but they're definitely probably not going to look the same as they necessarily did a long time ago. It's very, very interesting. But of course, your study has only focused in Hawaii um, and in the tropics. And I mean, you know, coral reefs are found all over the world. And so you mentioned to us before that you've kind of moved on in your research and you've gone from the tropics to the deep sea. So tell us, Kelsey, a little bit more about that work. Absolutely. So what drew me initially to ocean science was the deep sea. I actually took an oceanography course my first year of university because I was told that it was the easiest science course to take. And I thought, I'm not a scientist. I, I need to get the science requirement out of the way. This is in the United States where you have to take a whole bunch of subjects. So I thought, let me just do the easiest science, get it out of the way, and then I'll move back over to my humanities. And the first day in this course, the professor showed us a TED Talk film, and she showed us a video of a TED Talk, which was given by Dr. Robert Ballard, and he's the man who discovered the Titanic wreck. He discovered deep-sea hydrothermal vents, and his TED Talk was all about how little we know about the deep sea and how important ocean exploration is, and how we need to get the youth involved in becoming ocean explorers. And in that moment, I was so enthralled, I could not believe that we still knew so little about our deep sea and we're going to the moon. We have plans to go to Mars. We have rovers already on Mars. And yet we don't know really what's on the sea floor. And so I was so keen, so excited. I thought this is exactly what I want to do. And I went up to my professor afterwards and I, I said, how, how do I do that? 
How do I work with ROVs? How do I get to explore the seafloor? And I completely shifted gear, decided I wanted to be a deep sea scientist. And I always knew I wanted to work with deep sea cold water coral reefs. And so I really thought within my master's, it would be a great way to transition by first doing tropical corals and use that as a stepping stone to get into cold water corals and deep sea, which I'm so thrilled to say worked out for me. I'm now doing my PhD, getting to work within deep sea ecology. So now instead of working in these warm waters, swimming around in my swimsuit, snorkeling around in Hawaii, you know, one thing I didn't really consider is that cold water corals are in cold water. I know it sounds really funny, but I thought, you know, oh, we go down with ROVs or an AUV or human occupied vehicle and they collect these corals and I'll be working with them, but I'm not going to be in that cold water. I mean, these my corals come from thousands of meters deep. You're, you're not diving down there in an immersion suit. But I didn't realize how much I'd have to stick my hands and entire arms <laughs> in their tanks of eight degree water. So I'm kind of regretting that shift from tropical to deep sea, just, <laughs> just a touch. But no, now I'm working with Lophelia pertusa, which is the most common cosmopolitan found around the world species of deep sea coral. It's this gorgeous white reef building coral. And I'm so happy to say that I have some of it. It took a whole trip to go and get this from partners that we have in Sweden and transport it back to the United Kingdom rushing against Brexit deadlines, against Mm. COVID border closures, but my corals are here. They are so happy. They're on fresh um, flow-through systems, so they're getting real seawater, which they're so much happier than if they were to be actually living at the Grant Institute at University of Edinburgh, where we use artificial seawater. So I'm very happy to say that my corals are looking well, and I'm ramping up for my experiments that I'll be doing on them uh, during my PhD. Wow, that is absolutely incredible. Uh, I can't believe that you've transitioned away from the tropics. I am, you know, I'm heartbroken for you, but also incredibly excited because, wow, 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 wow. I, For me, as a, as a tropical marine scientist, I've always had this obsession with these shallow water corals. And I remember when I learned for the first time that you know, deep sea corals even existed. I was like, no, no, really? That, no, that, that's not right. Corals love shallow <laughs> um, light water. So um, tell us a bit about the differences between the corals that we're seeing at these depths compared to the ones that, you know, I love and know in, in these shallow tropical environments. Absolutely. And I think you're completely right that a lot of people don't realize that we have deep sea water, deep sea cold water corals. And being here in Scotland, People don't know that you have corals right here in Scotland. They're in Scottish waters. And it's, it is quite shocking how little is still known about them, and especially just awareness within the general public. And people don't understand how they can exist because people think, but they need sunlight. And that's just tropical corals. And that's because these deep sea cold water corals don't have that same association with the zooxanthellae living inside their tissues. So they don't have this photosynthetic um, algae symbiont that is helping them provide them with nutrients. And that is what needs the the sunlight in tropical corals. But these deep sea cold water corals, instead, they get their food from prey capture. So they use their polyps, their little tentacles coming from their polyps, to capture any floating by food particles, zooplankton that are in the water column. And that's how they survive. And that's how they grow. So I mentioned my Lophelia pertusa is white. 
And that's because it doesn't have these colorful zooxanthellae living inside its tissue to give it a gorgeous color. But it doesn't mean that it's bleached uh, because it can't bleach. And it doesn't mean that it's sick or dying. That just is the color of the coral skeleton. And then the tissue around it is kind of this, this soft pink, if you will. That's so fascinating. Obviously, the, the fundamental differences between those corals that, like you say, have that symbiotic relationship with algae and then our deep sea corals that don't and rely on capturing food. So that that's getting my mind whizzing. So when you know we think of coral reefs, we think of all of these pressures like bleaching that are having a profound impact. So climate change is having a profound impact in our sh- shallow coral reefs. But what about our deep sea corals? Are they equally being impacted by things such as climate change? Are they facing the same sort of stresses that tropical coral reefs are? Or is it a different story altogether? Yes, that's a great question. So even though these deep sea coral reefs are also undergoing stressors from climate change, it's impacting them in slightly different ways. So the concern here isn't that a big heat wave will come and the coral will expel their zooxanthellae and it'll lead to coral bleaching. It's actually kind of different mechanisms that's occurring in these cold water coral reef ecosystems. So first of all, temperature is a concern just based on natural ranges of corals and a lot of animals. A temperature is always something you want to look at and a concern. Another one is oxygenization within the deep sea. It's a concern that the level of oxygen will really decrease by the end of the century. So looking at how lower oxygen impacts cold water corals and also pH. With ocean acidification, one big concern for these cold water corals is that while it seems that the living coral that's covered with tissue can kind of buffer itself and keep growing and survive in waters that are decreased with aragonite saturation, actually, as corals grow upwards, they leave their dead exposed skeletons behind. So they're kind of growing upwards and living on top of their dead ancestors. And it's this exposed coral skeleton, which supports these giant thousands of years old reef structures that we are concerned about the impacts of ocean acidification and the shallowing of aragonite saturation horizons. That's one big concern. Will this skeleton structure be exposed to this corrosive water that's more acidic and going to cause the calcium carbonate within their skeleton to dissolve. And if this happens, if these skeletons become more porous, can that mean that less it'll take less stress to be able to topple this reef? Or will it get to the point where it's no longer able to support the living reef on top of it crumbling? So this is something that I'm looking into within my PhD is I'm doing experiments with triple stressors. So the combined effect of temperature, decreased oxygen, and decreased pH, as well as just looking at decreased oxygen, because that has only ever been done in short-term experiments before. And I'm also doing this experiment with living coral and with dead coral. So I have these newly, freshly dead coral skeletons that um, I'm also exposing to different levels of pH based on IPCC future scenarios. So I'm looking to see if that water is corroding, if it's causing increased dissolution, increased porosity within the cold water coral skeleton, and if that perhaps can mean that we're going to see crumbling deep sea reefs. Wow. Gosh, that is so interesting to see that climate change once again has the potential to wrap its hands around ecosystems that as you know, in our daily lives, we can't really see or touch right right down there deep in the ocean. That's absolutely mental. Um, so 
let's talk about kind of the practicalities now of your PhD. How has, um, this is very localised for us here in the UK, um, but how has Brexit and also COVID, the current pandemic, affected uh, your PhD? Yes. So one concern with Brexit was getting the corals because Lophelia pertusa is a CITES-listed species. So this means the import-export of it is controlled and you have to make sure you have the right forms, you have the permit to collect it, and then you have import-export permits to move it across borders. However, you are able to transport animals within the EU. And so we knew it was going to be a paper logistical nightmare to try to get these corals after the UK had left the European Union. So Mm. we raced to Sweden. We were there and we brought them back in October so that we would be able to transport them across borders without this additional paperwork needed. So that was one really direct impact. Um, Other Brexit impacts have just been with being able to get supplies, really, uh, making sure I can get my aquarium tanks, getting the Profilux computer, which controls the systems, make sure the temperature is the right um, level in the tanks. So dealing with suppliers during Brexit has been a bit of a challenge. And with COVID-19, it's just access to the facilities. And I was originally meant to get these corals in April 2020, ended up getting them in October 2020, just based on restrictions and was really lucky to be able to travel to Sweden with two other members of my teams, one of whom was a co-author on the paper we were discussing, and get those corals, drive them back. They got to go on a freight ferry to come over (laughs) to the United Kingdom. Well-traveled corals. (laughs) They are, yes. They need a little coral passport, I think. (laughs) I was actually about to ask, how does a a coral travel? do you take it as hand luggage? Does it sit next to you on the seat or is it bolted in with the rest of the stuff? <laughs> so they travel like we travel in a hotel. So they have a coral hotel and it is this big, huge tank that can be plugged into an energy source. And we, we load this into the back of a big, huge van and then we fill it with local seawater from the marine station in Sharnu in Sweden. And we fill that up with this nice cold water for them in the water they're used to. They're put in little coral baskets, we say, which, yeah, they're, they're plastic baskets. So they have holes in them so the airflow and water flow can, can go through them. And the corals are separated in their baskets by colony. So they're chilling with their coral friends because some colonies <laughs> don't like each other. Yeah, I have two that one colony can't be next to another or else they'll get kind of sad. Their polyps will like droop down. So you want nice, big, happy, looking upward polyps. So yeah, you got to keep the corals a little separate, make sure they're next to the colonies they like. (laughs) And then you really kind of race against time to plug in this coral hotel into its power source. So it'll be driving without power for a few hours. But then once it gets to the freight ferry, plug it into the power source, which I wasn't actually on this freight ferry. I somehow lucked out of this coral transport aspect. I flew back to the United Kingdom and I was waiting for the corals at the marine station and I was dealing with them once they had arrived there instead of being on the freight ferry. But my lab mates who were on this freight ferry said they're here with these massive lorries and these big containers. And then it was the two of them showing up like, yes, we have coral. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, That's my. so funny. I love it. These corals are literally traveling in luxury. But, you know, one question that I'm uh, it's just popped into my mind, Kelsey, is that obviously these deep sea corals are living in very, very, very different conditions under a lot of pressure. You know, you mentioned that you were collecting them from, was it over a thousand meters? Yes, so these corals from Sweden, they were actually only a few hundred meters, but the species Lophelia protusa can be collected from thousands of meters. It's been found up to 3,000 meters deep. So yes, they are under immense pressure, even at a few hundred meters. When you learn about pressure, when you're taking diving lessons and you look at how fast that pressure builds up as you just go down 10 meters, 20 meters, 30 meters, you really can see that these animals are, are really adapted and specialized to live in this pressurized system. However, what I will say is that when you bring these corals up using the ROVs, luckily they seem to be okay with this and all experimentation that I'm aware of, and especially long-term lab experimentation, they are just under normal pressure. They like to have mm -hmm. a bit more water on top of them. You want to make sure they always have about 10 centimeters of water on top of them just because they're used to always having that big water mm -hmm. column above them. But no, I think it's extremely expensive to be able to have access to these pressurized chambers. And mm -hmm. oftentimes there are facilities owned by university booked in advance and experiments in there usually only happen for a few days or so. And mm -hmm. once it's already been brought to the surface in the ROV, it's already undergone this initial pressure change. So no, although they are specialized to these higher pressures, most of the work done with cold water corals and many deep sea animals is just done at atmospheric pressure. Wow, that is absolutely crazy that they can survive from right down there to right up here. Um, I wouldn't. I mean, I don't function in the morning <laughs> unless I've had a coffee and that's not exactly a lot of pressure, is it? You would not be an adaptable coral, Charlie, no. I don't think. <laughs> Um, Kelsey, now to kind of finish off um, the last couple of minutes of the podcast, I would like to talk about something that is very close to my heart, and that is incredible teams of female scientists. And you mentioned to us that during your master's fieldwork and getting these uh, manuscripts published, you were supported by an incredible uh, majority female team of scientists. Tell us about this experience. And um why you loved it, assuming that you loved it, of course. <laughs> yes, I absolutely did love it. I think it's so different than what you oftentimes see on papers, which is one or two females with a lot of male authors, often the male author in the first author and the anchor author positions. So it was really a new experience to be on a predominantly female team. Now, I, out of seven authors, six of us are female and the one male was my supervisor at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences, Professor Ian Bryson. He was on the paper. And then my co-supervisor from the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology, Dr. Keisha Barr, she is the senior author on this paper, was really instrumental in getting these experiments done and getting them past the finish line to publication. Her and another one of my co-authors, Dr. Kalue Rogers, who's also at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. They were guest editing an issue on coral reef ecology for the journal Diversity. And so Keisha reached out to me, said, hey, I know that you did two experiments in your master's. Great job publishing the first, which Keisha was on as co-author, of course, and said, 
Are you keen to do that second chapter? You want to get your second experiment out there? I can go ahead, offer you a article processing charge fee waiver, which is so important to me. I am so keen to publish in open access journals so that my research is accessible to everyone. However, oftentimes publishing in these journals, you're having to pay these huge 1,000 pound, 2,000 pound article processing charges which is really out of reach for a lot of early career researchers, including myself. So being able to publish open access without having to pay this fee was a huge benefit for me. And that really gave me the push I needed. But I felt really unconfident about my statistics. I'm not a statistician. I'm not that strong on R or Python. And so I thought I'm really going to need some help. I had struggled a bit with my first publication when they wanted statistical changes to happen. And I really relied on the goodwill of some of my friends to help me out. And I didn't want to do that this time around. I wanted to make sure there was someone on the team who, if we got a major revision request to redo the stats, I could turn to. She was on the paper and would be able to help me out. And so I didn't have to look too far. I brought in my lab mate at University of Edinburgh within the Changing Oceans Research Group, Nadia Jogi, and she was able to come on to the paper, join on, really get into it, bring new ideas. She helped me come up with the title and and run those stats. And I got to collaborate with another incredible female. She got to be added to that author list. It was a win-win all around. Gosh, I love that. I absolutely love that. And I also, I think there's so many points I want to pick up on there. You know, I think... um, it's amazing that you kind of, I guess, looked for help with stats. You know, I think a lot of us in this field um, get very, very afraid of stats and we're not statisticians. Um, they they absolutely plague my nightmares. I remember doing my master's and, and doing linear model regressions and just being <laughs> like, um, so I think it's amazing that you reached out, looked for fellow women that could help you. Um, and you know, that you collaborated together and kind of play to each other's strengths. And also, I know Mads is going to be so over this as well, but the whole, I, you know, the whole thing about publishing in journals and everything being behind this paywall and not being accessible to the masses is something we're so, you know, frustrated with. And we, like you, are super passionate about open access. Science should be open access. People shouldn't have to pay. Early, you know, researchers, early career researchers shouldn't have to pay you know, above the odds to get their their work published in these journals. And then, you know, the general public should have access to that. So we could probably just go on for hours about this. <laughs> we um, could honestly, Charlie and I, this is our daily discussion on, um, <laughs> you know, things that need to change within the marine science and the, and the general, the wider science industry as well. We could definitely go on about this. But um, yeah, it was absolutely brilliant to hear that from you as well. And I absolutely love again how many women were on this paper helping you to get published and it's a great paper very very much enjoyed reading it and we have absolutely loved to have you on today I think that's probably about all we have time for so um before you wrap up and tell us where people can find you on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever, um, would you like to leave us with any words of wit and wisdom about corals or anything marine related? Absolutely. As a young early career researcher, a woman in science, the biggest thing for me has just been telling people what you want. If you let people know, I love deep sea science, but I'm not sure how to get into it. Can you offer advice? Would you be able to point me in the right direction? It will open doors. And I really think that putting what you desire within your career out there into the universe and open, being open and discussing this with people, it can make a world of difference. 
And as I mentioned, how the TED Talk by Dr. Robert Ballard first made me interested in doing deep sea ecology. It comes full circle. And two years after seeing that TED Talk, I was sailing with him on his vessel on the EV Nautilus as that ROV was going into the water. And I knew I had spoken to enough people. I had made it clear what I envisioned for myself and for my future in marine science. And I made it happen. And I really think that you can too. Ah, I love that so much. I completely agree. Yeah, that is absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, Kelsey. And I think that is an incredibly important message. You know, if you don't ask, they can't say no. Wait, Mm -hmm. is that the right way? (laughs) (laughs) If you don't ask, they can't say yes. (laughs) There we go. That's the one. That's the one. So Kelsey, thank you for joining us today. Where can people find you if they'd like to hear more about you and your research? Absolutely. The best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Kelsey Barnhill one. I'm also on LinkedIn and always open to making new connections there. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Kelsey. Um, It was great to have you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed getting to chat science early in the morning. Great start to the day, making me geared up to move over to cold water corals for the rest of the day and start thinking about climate change impacts on, on those for my PhD project. You go, girl. You have been listening to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, brought to you by Women in Ocean Science and hosted by me, Matt Sinclair and Charlie Young. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to give it a share and you can find us on socials as at Women in Ocean Science. We are a non-profit organisation, so every like, comment, share and bit of support goes such a long way in helping us to elevate the voices of the women working to protect the ocean and helps us to continue on our mission. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and I hope you have an awesome week.